Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted June 23, 2017, we talk with freelance Canadian journalist Michael Colborn about political warfare on the World Wide Web and his WPJ blog post headlined, Made in Bulgaria, Pro-Russian Propaganda. We'll also point out top features in the new WPJ summer issue, cover line, Justice Denied. But first, some top news of the past week. President Trump conceded that China had failed to arrange a freeze of North Korea's nuclear and ballistic missile development, as he had hoped. Quote, at least I know China tried, he tweeted, days after the death of a long-held comatose American college student just released by Pyongyang. The Trump administration denied interest in a deal favored by South Korea and China to reduce U.S. military presence on the peninsula in exchange for such a freeze. Over Syria, U.S. downing of an Assad regime jet prompted a Russian threat to target American aircraft west of the Euphrates River. Congress moved to step up U.S. sanctions on Russia and Iran and deter Trump from scaling them back again. And the Supreme Court agreed to hear a case that spotlights gerrymandering of congressional districts that has helped maintain GOP control in recent years. In Saudi Arabia, the king chose a new crown prince and heir apparent, his 31-year-old son Mohammed, already a force behind some economic and social reforms, but also the stymied war in Yemen. In London, the Queen's annual speech suggested a scaled-back legislative agenda for Prime Minister Theresa May after losing her majority in Parliament, and there was no mention of an expected Trump state visit. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. It's not a Republican thing or a Democratic thing. It really is an American thing. They're going to come for whatever party uh, they choose to try and uh, work on behalf of, and they're, they're not devoted to either, in my experience. They're just about their own advantage, and they will be back. It happened even before fired FBI Director James Comey told the Senate Intelligence Committee there was absolutely no doubt the Kremlin was behind hacking and leaking to affect the 2016 U.S. election. Russian President Vladimir Putin actually, partially, briefly, walked back his previous insistence to the contrary. Independent patriotic Russian civilians might have been behind it, he boasted, then executed yet another about-face to suggest that American hackers may have done it to make his country look bad, though not specifying anyone in particular weighing 400 pounds or not. Quote, it's Russia's aim to undermine the political cohesion in Western institutions, warns Anders Fogh Rasmussen, formerly Prime Minister of Denmark and head of NATO. Last month, Russian social media sites popular in Ukraine were blocked by Kiev to counter Russian propaganda and hacking of Ukrainian users, many of whom objected, as did some key human rights advocates. Russia countered with a cyber attack on the website of President Petro Poroshenko, Kiev complained, and representatives from Ukraine, Georgia, Poland, and the Baltic states appealed to another U.S. Senate panel for help against Russian hacking, fake news, propaganda, and other political intervention, never mind Russian military personnel in or out of official uniform. But things aren't always what they seem in today's political web wars, and sometimes others do Russia's dirty work for reasons of their own. 
One example comes from freelance Canadian journalist Michael Colborn in a recent WPJ blog post about pro-Russian propaganda, quote, made in Bulgaria. And we talked about it the other day for this podcast. Michael Colborn, welcome to World Policy on Air. Well, thanks for having me. Talk about the mother-son team working on Facebook from an out-of-service movie theater in the tiny town of Pliska in Bulgaria, a member, we should recall, of both NATO and the EU. What sort of content are they creating? Well, it's, it's a pretty interesting story. And what, what they're doing, uh, it's, uh, th- this mother-son and stepfather team, uh, what they're doing is, is, is pushing out tons of pro-Russian or pro-Kremlin content. I mean, they're putting out, this, this is an, an outfit that uh, over the last two years, in the name of the son, his name is Adrian Dimitrov. Uh, he's with 29 different uh, Facebook profiles. Yes, 29. He's put out about 90,000 posts in the last two years. And most of the content, well, a lot of the content of these posts are specifically about Bulgarian politicians. They're, they play up the Bulgarian Socialist Party, the BSP, who's generally the more pro-Kremlin party in Bulgaria. Uh, lots of posts talking about their leader, Cornelia Ninova, in a positive light, and other, other politicians. And then very negative posts, on the other hand, about uh, the, the current Prime Minister, Boyko Borisov, and his GERB party, who are generally more, seen as more pro-EU. So while most of, their, most of their posts are specifically about that Bulgarian content in a Bulgarian context, there are a lot of, I guess, if, if for, for people who follow uh, Russian disinformation and propaganda around the world, there's some very common themes that come up in a lot of what they post. There's a lot of anti-refugee content, uh, Islamophobic content. In the Bulgarian context, there's a lot of anti-Roma uh, content, and there's a lot of talk about... Uh, about George Soros, one of the, the terms that they use in, in Bulgaria, and it's a word I was introduced to working on this story, was the term Sorosoid, as per that, that term, apparently. In, in we, should remind peop- we should remind people that George Soros is now the American citizen billionaire financier who's promoted a lot of pro-democracy activity throughout Europe. Right. And it, in Bulgaria, of course, he's... He is, Bulgaria is one of the countries where the pro-Kremlin forces see him as this sort of Western puppeteer, boogeyman type figure. And those are the kind of, that, that, I mean, that, that sounds a bit stretched coming for me, but if, if look at the, the content, look at the things that uh, this troll family has put out. It, it really does sound like that. It's, it's very, very strange pro-Kremlin, anti-Western content. You trace their motivation to serious complaints by the head of the family against the center-right, generally pro-European GERB party of uh, Prime Minister Boyko Borisov, who won re-election this spring. What's that story? Well, that's, that's quite the story. Um, uh, some Bulgarian journalists, they, they inquired, they looked into his background a bit further once the, sto- once the story of this troll family uh, came out. By him, I mean the the head of the family, Stefan Poinov, uh, the, st- the journalists investigated and they found that in uh, 2010, 
uh, pol- the Bulgarian police had searched uh, Mr. Proinov's home looking for, well, essentially looking for antiquities or treasures, like for ha- being in possession. It might sound a bit strange to an American audience. It sounds strange to my Canadian ears, too, of you know, finding, you know, treasures or archaeological findings and not reporting them to the proper authorities, et cetera, et cetera. The police in, in his town of Pliska were apparently tipped off that he had some of these, you know, hundred or millennia old things in his house. So they, they searched his house looking, you know, with, with these potential charges in mind, looking, looking for them. And they did find a few dozen antiquities, but uh, they also found five kilograms of marijuana and a bit of hashish in there. And the street value of, of the drugs they found in there was about 16,000 American dollars. So they, of course, they found this, charged him. Uh, and at, uh, in court, uh, Poinoff tried to say that uh, the marijuana, all of it was for his sick mother. And of course, it, it should also be mentioned that Proinoff was also living on disability at the time. He was on a pension of about 65 uh, American dollars a month for diabetes. Nonetheless, the court uh, didn't quite buy the excuse that the five kilograms of marijuana was for his sick mother. Um, But that being said, the court was actually lenient on him and gave him a probation, uh, a year year of house arrest and a a fine. But even so, that's apparently led uh, Proinoff to take up some vendetta against Gerb. Somehow he, he seems to think that these charges were, were played up or that he's being targeted. And I'm not sure that there's any evidence to suggest that's the case. How does the family see uh, this kind of pro-Russian propaganda as revenge for what happened to them, uh, to the father, and their goal of reshaping uh, of uh, Bulgarian politics and policies? When, when we talk about the family, I think it's important, first of all, to note that the only member of the family who's spoken publicly is Stefan Koinov. Uh, and what, what he said, the, the very few interviews or quotes that he's given to uh, Bulgarian journalists, I tried to contact him multiple times. He wouldn't speak with me. Uh, but their main, when they talk about reshaping Bulgaria, particularly in a, in a vengeful way against Gerb, they see it as, in, well, particularly, of course, I mean, Poinov, Stefan Poinov, they, they really seem to see their role as trying to stop what they see as too much Western influence on Bulgaria. Now, Bulgaria is a country that, of course, gets forgotten about. It's, it's a, just to remind or to tell people, Bulgaria is, I mean, it's a country that's had long-standing links with Russia uh, there was it was joked during Soviet times that Bulgaria was the 16th Soviet Republic because of how loyal it was. Uh, Bulgaria was the main place where people in the former Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc used to go on vacation. And of course, Bulgaria, with a, a Slavic language relatively close to Russian, and also Slavic roots and and a common religion and Orthodoxy, um, what Poinov is trying to do, trying to do well, what he's wanting to reshape his country with is pushing back against that that Western connection and trying to play up this connection towards the East, as it were. 
Well, of course, propaganda today doesn't really require leaflets and placards, uh, but where do uh, father, uh, stepfather, mother, and son get the money for all of the work they do? Uh, is there a Moscow financial connection? Well, first, uh, Poinov claims that uh, all, the co- all, all their revenue comes from uh, revenue from tra- ad traffic and and his, I think his exact word for something around like drowning in loans. They get a lot of loans. His line is that, yeah, it's just from advertising and, and, and loans. Um, people in, in Bulgaria have tried to dig further because the idea of even just these three people being able to, or even more people who might be unnamed that he hasn't talked about, but the idea that this family can put out quite literally 150 posts a day uh, with, you know, on a, a shoestring budget, to say the least, in one of the, one of the poorest parts of Bulgaria, and which, is one of, which is the poorest country in the European Union. The idea that they can do this on that, everybody, quote-unquote everybody that I, that I talk to in Bulgaria, just, there, there's eyebrows upon eyebrows raised as to how they can pull this off, particularly when... The, um, the overarching company that uh, Stefan Poinov owns, well, technically it's, it's, it's in Adrian's name, it's in his son's name, it's registered as bullpress.info. And according to a, one Bulgarian source, one Bulgarian journalist, uh, they didn't report any income or expenses last year. So there's just this murky web of where where do they get the capacity to be able to do this? So there's, there's no hard proof of any, of any Moscow connection, of any even second or third hand connection. But uh, like I said, it, this is one of these cases where everybody's kind of raising an eyebrow and wanting to know more about how outfits like this can, can actually function. But you say disinformation in Bulgaria is hardly just the work of small-town trolls like that family. Give us the big picture of what you call anti-democratic propaganda across the country. The, the, the bigger picture with what I guess we could call anti-democratic propaganda is a term I'm borrowing from uh, a study that was put out uh, a few months ago by, uh, by a, a liberal Western-leaning uh, think tank in Bulgaria. What they did is they using using a, a, a software company's algorithm that works with them? They analyzed uh, data from Bulga- about 3,000 Bulgarian websites and blogs from 2013 to 2016. Uh, they used keywords that they identified in a pilot study to to to, to find me- you know, mentions of certain types of things, like an example, the term "gay ropa" or "gay ropa" in a in, in Bulgarian to try to, to find you know, uh, stories like that. And what they found was that, well, number one, there's been an increase in, in some of this anti-democratic, there's a lot of different terms that they can fall under anti-democratic, but it generally is pro-Russian or pro, pro-Kremlin content, that there's definitely been an increase in it over the past three years. And in some cases, with some of the different themes that they looked at, uh, it, it increased quite literally do- dozens of times over. And what was particularly interesting is they found that some of the peaks and valleys of when these types of stories were talked about, when these themes were talked about, they actually 
matched up more with the Russian political calendar. For example, when there were, they found that uh, stories on on Russia's annexation of Crimea, uh, stories painting that in a positive light, or or that being mentioned, that that peaked with a. Uh, just after the annexation itself, and then it peaked on the anniversary of it. Uh, the, uh, things with, um, they've looked at anti-NATO or anti-EU content. Uh, it peaks when there's different types of conferences, when there's G7, well, formerly G8, now G7 conferences. And when, there, when there's NATO conferences, that anti-NATO content or content about uh, NATO as a sort of hegemon who's trying to encircle Russia, that, that sort of line. That has its peaks and valleys with, with these conferences. And, but what, they, what I found the most interesting was what's peaked the most recently in Bulgaria is what they call, what the researchers on this project called anti-civil society content. It's content that's really centered just in Bulgaria, and it's content speaking out against uh, people who work in, in, in civil society in Bulgaria, like the actual think tank who put this study out, uh, content trying to paint anybody who's working for reforms in Bulgaria as lackeys of the West, their puppets, their, as I mentioned, their sorosoids. Uh, they're just working for West, the quote-unquote the West's interest against, uh, against what Bulgaria should be. And what, this, what the researchers on this, what they argue is that this type of disinformation or propaganda, what it, it, its intent isn't to somehow switch Bulgaria's allegiances from the EU and NATO. As mentioned, of course, Bulgaria isn't the European, European Union and NATO. Their goal isn't to somehow magically shift them 180 degrees towards being almost part of Russia. The goal is just to make, to try to render Bulgarian people voters as cynical as possible to make them doubt any capacity for reform in their country. Bulgaria is a country that it's the lowest, it, it scores the lowest on the uh, Transparency International's Corruption Perceptions Index, and it also scores low on Media Freedom Index. So there's already a lot of cynicism in Bulgaria, particularly since a lot of the corruption that people see there and that I've, that I've seen there. Um, it's corruption that's actually got worse since they joined the European Union. So the, the risk with this, this kind of messaging coming out in different outlets and on, on, on with, with Facebook trolls and social media trolls is that it just enhances that, makes that cynicism even worse. And some major Bulgarian media companies seem only too happy to spread the bad word. Yeah, and that's... It's interesting in Bulgaria because a lot of the, the media is very, like I, like I just mentioned, media, the media freedom in Bulgaria is quite an issue, and it's been an issue for a number of years. It, like I mentioned, in the, the press, press freedom index, it's, it's the low, it scored the lowest out of any European Union country, and that's because of a lot of the issues around media ownership. There's one oligarch in particular, uh, name is Delian Pievsky, and he owns several television stations, and he also owns two of the um, most two of the most visited uh, websites in Bulgaria. And a lot of the content he puts out, well, not that he puts out, but a lot of the content that he 
that comes out on on his on his channels in on in the papers that he has some ownership connection to and on these websites it's not always overtly pro-russia or pro-kremlin but a lot of times it does take take a, a kremlin friendly position on things particularly when it's around economic interests when Belyanpevsky is also a member of the Bulgarian parliament. And several years ago, uh, when Russia was trying to build the South Stream pipeline project through Bulgaria, Belyanpevsky was one of the oligarchs who was speaking out the most specifically in favor of it. And he was also accused, he denied all these accusations, he was also accused of having financial connections to uh, companies that might benefit from the project. So with media ownership on Bulgaria, it's this murky web of, of corruption and, and various interests that come into play there. Uh, social media and major media propaganda did not prevent the election of Prime Minister Borisov, but it was a big factor in the 2016 uh, presidential election. Well, yes, social media and some of this disinformation played a role. Uh, it's all, when some of the people that I, that I spoke to in, in Bulgaria were pretty keen to mention to me that it wasn't quite as stark as the way it was painted in Western media at the time. Like a generally, quote-unquote, pro-Kremlin Bulgarian Socialist Party candidate won. It was really seen as somehow cataclysmic. And it, certainly from the point of view of people in Bulgaria who would count themselves as pro-Western, they, they were not particularly enthused about rather winning the presidency, but they reminded me that, one, uh, the presidency, it's a, it, in, in, in Bulgaria's system, it's a much more limited role. It's the prime minister in parliament who wields most of the power. And they also told me that, the, um, that Boyko Borisov's Gare Party, the candidate that they put up to, to go up against Ruman Radev, was actually quite a weak candidate. So while there was to some extent, disinformation and propaganda that came into play there. Uh, there were also a lot of domestic factors that led to that of being elected in 2016. And then the, from just a few months after that into the parliamentary elections, uh, like I re- referred to with this, this research study, they found that that's in that four-month period in the beginning of the year, that's when the content really started getting amped up. That's when you saw um, Adrian Dimitrov putting out over a space of just two and a half months from the beginning of January into the middle of March, he put out 27,000 posts on one of on each of his 29 profiles. The disinformation really got amped up for the parliamentary elections and did it work? Well, the, the party that the, the disinformation peddlers didn't want to win won by almost six percentage points. So it, it, it's, it's a very... It's why I find, I found, as a journalist, I found looking at this issue in Bulgaria so fascinating because it, it shows the complexities of disinformation and how they work with local factors. And they show sometimes that it looks like disinformation has the upper hand, but then all of a sudden it looks like all the disinformation didn't entirely work, but it might work again next time. So it's, it's fascinating. And unfortunately, there's no... Uh, there's no easy answer to how much influence does disinformation like this have and how much better or worse is the situation going to get.
Well, you talk about complexity. I was surprised that Borisov, despite winning against pro-Russian propaganda, is himself forging links to the country's pro-Kremlin far right. Say more about that and its implications. That's, this, again, this is something I, I find quite fascinating as, as Westerners covering Bulgaria and, and, and looking at it, is that these divisions that we have uh, about, quote-unquote, pro-EU versus pro-Kremlin, well, whilst there, those labels do this, and I mean, obviously, as I've been talking, I've been using those labels too. In Bulgaria, they, they, there's no, not necessarily a stark division between somebody who's pro-EU versus pro-Kremlin. Like, for example, e- even though Boyko Borisov is more pro-EU, he is somebody that, that has had connections with, uh, with pro-Kremlin elements. I mean, his government right now, because he had to form a coalition, uh, his government right now is in a coalition with the, the United Patriots, who are themselves a coalition of three generally far-right parties. And two of those far-right parties of the three are pretty unabashedly pro-Kremlin parties. And the, leaders, the leader of one of those parties, uh, Krasimir Karakachanov, is now the defense minister. So what the situation now is that, yes, there's this nominally, generally pro-EU prime minister who says all the right, the right things, but his defense minister is unabashedly pro-Kremlin. And I, I, I haven't seen that talked about much in, in the West at all or in any, any English language coverage that as soon, it, it seemed to me that as soon as uh, Borisov won the election at the end of March, the worries that I'd seen in a week or two before about a potentially pro-Gremlin candidate winning, everybody just kind of moved on. And the point that I made, that I tried to make to people a few weeks ago, a few months ago, was like, well, hey, wait a minute. Yes, the non-pro-Gremlin candidate won, but as, as one interviewee said to me when I spoke to him in Bulgaria, there's five parties in the Bulgarian parliament right now. Essentially, four and a half of them are pro-Kremlin parties. Even a lot of um, Borisov's own MPs would probably class themselves as more pro-Kremlin than pro-EU. So it's, it's the reason why it's so complex is because, because of the way Bulgaria works with uh, so much of the economy is, has, has a Russian footprint for for example, Gaz, Gazprom, excuse me, Gazprom is the only, Russia's Gazprom is the only natural gas provider in Bulgaria, while Russia's Lukoil is, they control about half the wholesale fuel market and they control the, the only refinery. So with both Western influence from EU funding and investment versus Russian investment and funding, what a lot of Bulgarian politicians do, and they've been doing this for a while, is they, they essentially try to maintain good, good relations, cordial relations with both the EU and Russia in the hopes of being able to leverage funding and support from both sides. They, they always try play to some extent a balancing act, and some, some balance a bit more towards the Kremlin sometimes, some balance a lot more towards EU, and some of them depending on how the winds or the cash flows go, they seem to jump back and forth. <laughs> Looking across the border, how do you see Moscow most benefiting from this Bulgarian-made pro-Russia propaganda? The, the way that they benefit the most isn't, like, like I alluded to, it isn't necessarily 
as if the, this, this information is going to turn Bulgaria away from the European Union or NATO. Uh, for example, the, even these pro-Kremlin parties that I've mentioned, none of them advocate leaving the European Union. None of them advocate as policy leaving NATO. The only way that Moscow, the only way that the Kremlin benefits from this disinformation and propaganda in Bulgaria is by increasing the sense of cynicism in the country that almost the, the way that they benefit is almost playing a long game, ho hoping that this cynicism you know, prevents the country from falling a bit further away from their orbit. And by their orbit, and Russia's interest, the Kremlin's interest in Bulgaria is principally almost exclusively economic. That's something that was reinforced, that was reinforced to me by several people, several people that I talked to in Bulgaria. Uh, the Kremlin isn't, the Kremlin, as much as people in, as much as some of these pro, very pro-Russian elements in Bulgaria might like to think otherwise, Bulgaria is really on the periphery for the Kremlin. It's a place where they have some interest in, but that interest is exclusively economic. If Bulgaria remains part of the EU and NATO, but Gazprom and Luke Oil and other Russian investments, if, they, if, they, they, if Russia can still make its money in the country, then, then it's, it's fine for Bulgaria to have its foot in the West. But as soon as, if Borisov tries to threaten Russia's economic interests in the country, that's when it gets ramped up. It's not so much about trying to flip the country, as it were. It's really just about trying to maintain the economic interest that it has in the country and using disinformation and propaganda as a, as a leverage when necessary to, to, get what they, to get what they want and to keep, keep what they have. Last question. According to another recent post uh, at the World Policy blog, Internet interference by Russia in the U.S. and French elections hits home hardest now in Germany as it prepares to vote this fall. And there's been controversy over proposed legislation to outlaw cyber attacks and fake news, making networks like Facebook responsible for assessing truth and legality, uh, maybe deleting or at least flagging content that falls short. What's your view of such efforts, uh, their implications for free elections on one hand and free speech on the other? Uh, for me, I, I think the well, first of all, I think the efforts that Facebook has done since the American election, um, I mean, they're, they're taking a step in the right direction, but it's not nearly enough. Uh, with, yes, there's a merit to fact-checking some stories or marking some stories as disputed or false, but uh, I think as, pe as people well know who, who, work in, who write about this information, who work in this area, that uh, you, all the fact-checking in the world isn't going to turn the top of this information off. You have, there has to be a way to limit the flow of, of disinformation onto websites like Facebook. And, of course, it's an it's a extremely difficult thing to do, and I'm certainly no... No, no, no tech wizard, but I, I think part of what has to be looked at more is with Facebook's algorithm and how it's decided that some stories, some outlets are further up and down, further up, up and down on people's feeds than other ones. Um, with the, the way, of course, that it works right now, far beyond Facebook and in the worlds that, that, that we both work in, um, so much of a uh, 
so much of what drives stories being published right now are just clicks, 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 and that's that's the model that Facebook's algorithm, and that Facebook operates under still is that if if story if these stories get clicks, that's the model is essentially still based around that. There has to be a way to introduce something other than just the click value of stories into the algorithm. If if stories from it, there has to be a way for to be able to identify sources that are that are less than truthful, to put it politely, and have a way that their that their stories don't show up as much versus versus stories from established outlets and even stories from from quality independent media to make sure there has to be a way for those stories to come to the fore, even if they're not generating as much clicks because they don't have the most controversial headlines. It's a very difficult issue, but I think there has to be a way to move away from this click-driven model of, model of news. I mean, like I said, it's a problem for all of us, but with the influence that Facebook has, if there's a way that they can move, move in, in the direction towards, towards more, more of a truth-based way of you know, allocating the distribution of news, if there's a way we can move to that, uh, versus just sheer clicks, then I think we're moving more and more in the right direction. Michael Colborn, thank you. Thank you. Michael Colborn is a freelance Canadian journalist working most recently out of Prague and Kiev to focus on Russia's disinformation strategies. His post on the World Policy Journal blog is headlined, Made in Bulgaria, Pro-Russian Propaganda. In the new WPJ summer issue, cover line Justice Denied, you'll read about Leila de Lima, the former senator now jailed after denouncing the president's murderous vigilante war on drugs there. Also about racism and the law in Germany, why Honduran farmers charge that the World Bank is investing in murder, and why Western fundraising fails to stop the spread of AIDS elsewhere. And listen next week when our podcast will provide a fuller preview of that new issue. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, online news editor Laurel Jerombeck, podcast producer Anna Grace Carter. I'm David Alpern.